This morning's passage from Acts is, uh, well, it's a famous one, but it's also one that engenders all sorts of debate amongst various Christians about whether this is a good way to go about evangelism. And there are schools of thoughts who, there is a school of thought that would suggest that uh, it was clearly a failure. That um, Paul's use of the philosophical trains of thought, the Greeks, uh, led him nowhere and that one should never do that uh, and uh, should just preach the gospel. And there are others who say, well, it actually led to the creation of the church in that place. And while many didn't listen, there were enough who did listen and that that is the way to go. So it is an interesting passage. It's clear from, in Luke's eyes anyway, that Paul was someone who had inside knowledge, who had, at least to some level, a classical education. He'd grown up in the Hellenistic world, and yes, he was a Pharisee, so he was well-schooled in the ways of Judaism, but because he had grown up in that Hellenistic world, some of that had rubbed off on him. And the Hellenistic world was Greek. Fundamentally, It was the world created by Alexander the Great that spread from Greece east. And so that allowed him to be able to go to Greece, the homeland of all this philosophical thought, and to engage with the people there with some of what he had learnt as a young man. As we think about Paul as a missionary and having inside knowledge, I wonder what then comes to mind when we think about missionary in our context. What kind of words or phrases we would use to describe the missionaries here? So what kind of words would you use to describe them? An example, yep. Anything else? Brave. Dedicated. When I use the word missionary, how many of you think of European men and women? European men and women? Well, the reality is that many of the missionaries in this country were Maori. And the month of May is when we remember some of those Maori missionaries. Too often... These people who sowed the seeds of the gospel of this country remain unknown to us. I'm sure that some of them in our calendar you know about, I hope you know about them, people like Henry Widamu Taratoa and Henny Tikiri Karamu, who are part of our story here. And there are others that I hope you might know about, like Luatara, who was the chief who invited Marsden over here and is remembered as the gateway for the gospel. Or Roto Waitoa, who was the first Māori ordained in this country. Frederick Augustus Bennett, who was the first bishop ordained, suffering, first Māori bishop, who was ordained suffragan bishop in the Diocese of Waipu. So again, tied up with our story here in this place. And others you might know about, like well, Widamu Tamihana, who was prophet and kingmaker from just over the other side of the Kaimais in Matamata. 
or Nakuku, also from Waharoa, the father of Turori, but also the missionary in Opotiki, who was the person who took the gospel to Opotiki, or to Werahauraki, who was the missionary in Nati Kahumunu, or finally Kerioka or Marihere of Tararaki, who are martyrs in Turangi. Today I want to tell the story of two of the people we remember in May. Piripi Tomata Akura, who was a missionary in Ngāti Purau, and Ihaia Te Ahu, missionary and priest in Te Arawa. Piripi Tomata Akura was, uh, well, sorry, in 1837 a group of Ngāpui chiefs went to visit the East Coast I'm not sure why they were there. I thought it was quite a courageous visit, really, uh, given the history of Ngāpui with Ngāti Purau. Uh, but when they returned, one of them went to see William Williams, who was the brother of Henry Williams, the head missionary and future first bishop of the Waikui Diocese. And he asked why there were no European missionaries on the East Coast. Especially, he said, since Māori across the East Coast were already meeting for Christian worship, and were doing no work on Sundays. Well, it's astounded the missionaries in Kerikeri. No one had gone anywhere near the East Coast, and they had no idea how the gospel had got there. Well, they sent out a party, William Williams went with them, and they discovered the story and the work of Pinipi Tomata Akura. Tomata Akura had been born in Whakafu, Fetira, near the Waikū River, which is about halfway between Tikitiki and Ruatoria, if you know that part of the coast at all. He was probably born before 1800, and in 1823, in one of the Ngāpui raids through that area, he was taken as a captive back up to the Bay of Islands. While he was there, he learned to read and write at the mission schools, but he wasn't baptised, and he didn't seem to show any appreciation for Christianity or interest in Christianity really apart from it being a vehicle for learning to read and write. The end of 1833, which is the year of Wilberforce in England, uh, managed to get slavery outlawed in the British Empire. William Williams arranged for the return of the East Coast Māori to their home. And so Tomata Akura returned back to Whakawhatira. And once he returned home, he worked hard to pass on what he'd learnt. He'd taken with him some short prayers and hymns on bits of paper, and on scraps of paper he'd written biblical texts. According to Ngāti Purau tradition, he began his teaching at a large assembly house that was put up for his use, and he would begin by saying, I have come from Kerikeri and from Paihia, and I have seen the Williams of the Four Eyes, which of course referred to Henry Williams who had glasses. So great was his commitment that what he had been taught, <coughs> to what he had been taught, that he persuaded people to not only not work on Sundays, but some of them also didn't work on Saturdays. And it was not unknown for people to sit still for two days. Can you imagine that in our busy culture? Well, that was going reasonably well, but in 1836 it was decided 
because of a tribal feud between Ngāti Whanau and Te Whanau which are the people kind of around Te Aroroa, um, that there needed to be a war party to go, and they asked Tomata Kura to take a leadership role in that. He agreed only on the condition that there was no cannibalism and no wanton destructions of canoes or crops. This was to be just about the battle. Well, his code of conduct was agreed to, and legend had it, has it that he led the Ngāti Pro forces with a musket in one hand and a copy of the New Testament in the other. Throughout the battle, he fought in this way, and his mana was greatly increased by the fact that he was uninjured at the end of the battle. Well, that impressed Anati Pro, but what impressed Afano Apanui was the restraint. At most of the battle happened outside of the park, Tauraroa, and at some point Anati Pro decided that enough Utu had been paid. The price had been paid, the battle could be discontinued, and they could leave. Now, this was not a common way of fighting, and they left, leaving the canoes and the crops unmolested. Again, unknown in Māori fighting. Well, that <coughs> restraint uh, had a marked impact on uh, the surrounding peoples. About this time, either somewhere near Te Araroa, uh, or when he got home, he was baptised, well, I wouldn't mean when he was home, but sometime around he was baptised and he took the name of Pedipi. So when the missionaries eventually came <coughs> to Waipu, they found the gospel already established, already shaping the daily life of many Māori in that area. And it was the result of this work that the Ngāpui chief reported to William Williams. Well, after Williams visited in 1838, he invited nine more young Māori to come back up to him to Paihia to train to carry on Tamata Akura's work. Rānia Kafia was one of those who heard the gospel from Piripi Tomata Akura, and he was later ordained deacon by Bishop Williams on the 17th of February 1860. In the 1950s, nine of the 15 Māori priests working in the Diocese of Waipu were descendants of Tomata Akura. We could say that our diocese history is entwined with this person. Uh, Williams eventually came here and uh, established his centre in Wairangahika, just out of Gisborne, uh, and that coming here was made possible because of his work. His coming here led to the creation of the Diocese of Waipu, and we stand on this person's shoulders today. And yet how many people know about Piripi Tomata Kura? Not many of us. We know about William Williams, we know about the Parker bishop, uh, missionaries, but we don't know about this missionary. This missionary who is commemorated by a tablet on a font at St Mary's Church in Tikitiki, which is a wonderful church. If you ever get to go to Tikitiki, you must stop at this. It's just a beautifully carved church and a memorial hill at Angatukia. It's not known when he died, 
but a Pirihi Tomata signed the Ngāti Pro petition to Governor George Bowen in 1868, protesting against the confiscation of land as a punishment for some Ngāti Pro had fought with the Hoho against the government. The second missionary and priest I want to talk about is Ihaia Te Ahu. Ihaia was uh, one of the earliest Māori clergy and was a missionary to the Arawa people for more than 50 years. He was born in 1823 in the Hapu of Ngāpui in Okaihau, uh, which is in the Kaikoura Kerikiri area in the far north. In 1833 he joined Thomas Chapman, one of the lay missionaries of the Church Missionary Society at Kerikiri, and lived with the Chapmans first at Kerikiri and then at Paihia. <coughs> when the Chapmans moved <coughs> to Rotorua in 1835, he went with them to work as their missionary assistant. In 1841, he married Rangi of, uh and the both were baptised and married by Archdeacon Brown. That's when he took the name Nihaya. By 1845, he was Chapman's leading teacher and was entrusted with conducting the Sunday services when Chapman was absent. <coughs> because he was Napoli and not Ottawa, <coughs> he was able to move amongst the various hapu at a time of uh, tribal conflicts in the Rotorua area and was able to work as a peacemaker. When the Chapmans moved to Makatu, in 1846, he hired them with his family and was involved in the establishment of that missionary work. In 1857, he began preparing for ordination. He first of all came here to Tauranga to study with Archdeacon Brown, and then he went up to Auckland to St Stephen's School, where he continued his studies, excelling in the exams. Unfortunately, he was unable to finish them up there because of ill health. And so he returned to Makatu and returned to the mission work that he was doing, eventually taking over from Chapman, who retired back up to Auckland in 1861. On the 3rd of November 1861, Ihaia was ordained deacon by Bishop William Williams. This is very close to the time uh, that we commemorated a few weeks ago. Ihaia is known as a church builder. He built two churches of note. The first is St Thomas Church at Makatu, and uh, the wood was left out to dry in the sun before they used it to build. And um, if you go there, there's a little footprint. I think it's a footprint in one of the one of the rafters in the church from where somebody had been standing and had left a print, uh, and then it was put up on the up on the thing. So the church. The little Anglican church in Makatu was built by Ihaia. Uh, those were hard times. Uh, there was all the trouble that was going on here. Makatu was one of the sites of one of the major battles before Gate Park. Uh, and then after that, there was the Paimada Day and the Ho-Ho movement, which swept through there. And so he was often not very confident of its success. But uh, with help from some European missionaries, it did begin to thrive after a while. On the basis of that, in 1882, he was appointed as the first vicar of Ohinimutu pastorate in Rotorua. 
Although the chaplains had established a mission station in Rotorua in 1835, the mission work there had suffered because of the disturbances in the 1860s. It said that the people of Arawa had seen something of the hollowness of Christianity of civilised men. And the Ho-Ho movement, Paimarare, and then Takuti had also contributed, contributed to the unsettled state of affairs. So he hired virtually had to re-establish the work of the church in the Rotorua area, which he did to great effect, and he became known as the hero of the missionary effort. And the presence, the strength of Māori Anglicanism in Rotorua is due to his work. He also needed to build a church, and so he worked hard at designing and building a church, which all came to fruition with the consecration of St. Faith's Church in Ōhinemutu on the 15th of March, 1885. And so that wonderful church is his legacy. He is renowned by various songs, and he is well remembered. He left Ōhinemutu in 1889, served briefly at St Stephen's College in Auckland and then retired in 1892 and moved to Kaikohe. He died on the 7th of July 1895 and was buried at Makatū. The month of May contains a number of dates where we commemorate Māori Christians. These Māori were chosen from many Māori Christians in our calendar Many Māori Christians of their time as representatives of the outstanding Māori witness that caused the gospel to be sown and take root in many parts of the whole country. It's interesting when you look at the names that the vast majority of them actually, their story is linked with ours in Waipu. Our diocese exists because of those missionaries, and yet many of them uh, remain unknown to us. So as we think about these two great missionaries, I wonder what these stories and the others not told, <coughs> how, how these stories change or add to our understanding of the story of our church and of our nation. And more importantly, I wonder what these stories offer us as we think about being missionaries today. So I leave you to think about that for a few minutes. If you want to, you can even talk to your neighbour about it. But if you don't feel you want to talk to your neighbour, that's right. But if you want to talk to your neighbour about that, I invite you to do that. How do these add to our understanding of our, of our church and our diocese? And what do these stories offer us today? <coughs>